Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, and welcome to The Signal Line. Today's podcast is a Friday remote viewing AMA with John Vivanco, recorded on July 16th, 2021. Shortly after declassification of remote viewing in 1995, John Vivanco was trained in remote viewing. Because of his skills, he quickly became a professional remote viewer and director of operations for one of the few successful civilian remote viewing think tanks, Transdimensional Systems. He remote viewed and ran teams of remote viewers on client projects, from the technology and financial sector to counter-terrorism for the FBI and some other mysterious projects for alphabet agencies. After closing down in the early 2000s due to death threats and continual harassment by a covert group intent on shutting the business down, John turned his focus to pursuing his interest in TV and media, while still running a team of remote viewers and training under the company name of Right Hemispheric. He worked with National Geographic on a number of projects. He also appears on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens and William Shatner's The Unexplained, as well as other TV networks like the Travel Channel. We hope you enjoyed the show. Take care. Okay, well, so we're pretty much nearly ready to start. So for the new people here, um, what we do is if you want to ask a question, you usually put your hand up in the participants panel. You could do that using the reactions button in the bottom of the screen. Uh, if you feel like you don't want to be verbal and ask a question, you can also type a question in the chat window at the bottom of the screen. We will try to pick that up for you as well. And uh, There's no general kind of uh, presentation tonight with John. Uh, it's just going to be a pretty much ask me anything uh, and have a general chat about all things remote viewing especially all of his research and bits, pieces and books and stuff. Bear with me. I'm just adding some more people here a second as I talk. Um, so that's pretty much it. So yeah, as you all know, it's John Vivancon tonight, formerly of TDS and now right hemispheric. Uh, I've seen lots of his videos online. And I'm sure a lot of you have as well. And we've also read his book, The Time Before Secret Words. I've got lots of questions myself on this, but I'm sure you guys have as well. So I think we should just go straight into it really and say, welcome, John. And, you know, thank you for taking the invitation up and, and speaking to us about all your your experience and research. Thanks, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, um, Daz is uh, one of those guys in the remote viewing field that uh, I've always looked to, looked at, um, but never spoken to um, because of the stuff that he's done. It's sort of like running parallel without ever connecting. So I really am excited to be able to connect this way. As I was saying to you uh, before when meeting started. Um, I read your book a while ago, but I also reread it again today. And just going back through it, it's just so similar the the targets that you've done, the moon, the Mars, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's and all your data you're getting from that and with your UFO kind of encounters as well and ET stuff. It's just, you know, it literally is almost like a mirror image of of everything that I've been gathering for years on, on those topics as well. So Yeah. Great. Yeah, to see I know. That. I remember this one session that you did. Um where you did area 51 and you were going down to these different levels. Yeah. And then when you hit a certain level, it was like, boom, closed off to you. 
Um, and, you know, we run into that kind of stuff as well, where when we hit some of these types of objectives, um, we get blocked or we get put into what I call uh, viewer traps, where it's just sort of this spinning kaleidoscope of colors and fractals and, and the viewers will kind of skirt around it thinking they're getting close to something. Um, and so they're sort of in this sort of perpetual like blocked zone. Have you run into that yourself? This sort of perpetual viewer trap blocked zone? I have, I don't think I have, but I know Courtney uh, claims to have uh, yeah, okay. experienced it on our behalf. And, and he claims to have seen us experience it in, in in some of the sessions we worked, I think when we tried the area 51, um, at first, none of us, none of us got any, any session work on it. And Courtney was a bit kind of worried and perplexed why none of us were getting, getting the target. And he claims to have done some stuff in the background that, uh, allowed us to access the target. I, I can't confirm or deny any of that myself, you know, being a, being a, um, a very amateur scientist, I have to, you know, I have to experience things for me myself yeah. to personally, to believe those those kind of things um but yeah i, I know other people have uh, had similar things so does any uh, before i go on and ask my tons of questions does anyone else want to start first with, with, with a question yeah i'll start thanks john okay. i've only got five questions so may maybe i should like stagger them um the first one i did the um TDS course that's on YouTube from 2001 with uh, Prue teaching. Um, and I'm wondering, you're still teaching that now. What's changed uh, in the TDS methodology since then? You know, not a lot. Not a lot. I've kept it really pure from, from that period of time. So it was Prudence Calabrese and Daniel Jenka um, who originally um, took the CD CRV methodology or SRV, it was through a Courtney. Um, and, and tweaked it. Um, and then I added stuff later on, as well as other methodologies to complement the whole TD, TDRB, TDS system. But no, I mean, really, it's, it's pretty pure um, from, that, from that original creation. But, you know, the thing is with remote viewing is that a lot of people think that there's some secrets within a methodology that will make them a better remote viewer. Um, and there's not, there's really not. Um, these methodologies were all, they all have the basis of ideograms. You know, when you're, when you're talking about these, um, the, the military style remote viewing methodologies, they all have the basis of coming off of ideograms. And then, and then from that standpoint, depending on what your needs are, you can tweak it in certain ways. So when you look at TDRV and you look at what we were doing back then, and you look at who was involved in the creation of it, you're looking at a bunch of artists. You're looking at, uh, Daniel was, Daniel built harpsichords. He was a musician. He built, he was a brilliant musician who built harpsichords. And Prudence was very creative um, and had a background in science and cyclotrons. And then I had a background, I have a background in uh, fine art. And so we were looking more on the side of having something with a greater flow to it than constantly flipping and changing um, within a, the strict CRV methodology to expand sections out a little bit more so that there was a little bit more freedom in, 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 in. It gets tricky though, because 
because the, the signal line, if you want to call it that, versus um, AOLing, there is more of a danger, I would say, in what TDRV um, brings to the table in AOLs because there isn't a lot of changes and shifts all the time. And so, so, so TDRV takes advantage of uh, the human's propensity or accepts the human's propensity to try to find meaning in everything because that's how we live our lives. We wanna find meaning. And that also sometimes goes into remote viewing sessions. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I kept it in the way I teach it is more or less the same as the beginning point because of that, because I take remote viewing not necessarily as getting information is a side effect of what it really does. Um, and what it really does is, well, it, it takes, it, it has the, the, the ability for you to understand how your mind works and it can take you to a closer experience of knowing the self. Not that remote viewing is a spiritual practice, but it has the very basic tenets, the very basic core of spiritual practices. And that is the letting go of AOLs, right? And that's really the big reason why I'm still doing this because at a certain point, it's like what's important, information gathering or knowing the self. And so remote viewing to me is this lead in for people to be able to begin to understand themselves. Is that okay, David? Yeah, that's great. Uh, it, it, it was that for me. I'll, I'll save my other four questions for later and let somebody else have a chance. Thanks, John. Excellent. Uh, I think Pablo has had his hand up next. If you'd like to go next, Pablo. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. So, John, for me, it's really nice to finally meet you. have been watching the videos, reading the books. So, so when that's told us, I was really excited. I have a ton of questions, of course, but there's one thing that never left my mind. So there was this small segment from the History Channel where you relate a little bit of your experience. There's something that really caught my attention that was that experience you had that night when you woke up and there was someone there. So if you're okay with that, could you share a little bit about that? So you're talking about the Firefly alien. Yeah. I, I think so. I, so that, that was an ancient aliens episode. Um, and I think they even did a little animation of the whole ordeal. Um, so that, that, that literally came from a project that we were working on um, that we called The Signal. Uh, we, we were asked by um, Ruben Uriarte and Joyce Murphy to remote view. Actually, they wanted us to remote view chupacabras in Puerto Rico because they had a television show and they wanted to see if they could find one. Um, I didn't believe that anything like a chupacabra was real. I, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very skeptical person, like right in the beginning, and like Daz, until I experience it myself, then I know the reality of it. Um, but outside of the chupacabra, there were these lights that uh, uh, people who lived in the area were seeing in the sky, they were kind of spinning lights and they were coming down into the jungle around the Arecibo radio telescope. And so we were doing a project um, on the Chupacabras and that, they wanted to know about that as well. And so that project was a massive, massive project because, and that was actually one of the key projects in my life 
where I realized something about analysis in remote viewing outside of being in contact with these other beings. So, so at that point in, in time, I was very focused on um, how remote viewers view, right? How do you interpret their information? Um, we look at everything as we want it to be physically, right? So in a remote viewing session, you would, you do tend towards, you have a bias towards interpreting things in a very straight up physical way. And we couldn't interpret it physically. We couldn't interpret it because the sessions were just all over the place. Um, and one, we have probably had, we had hundreds, of, hundreds and hundreds of pieces of paper laid across the floor and I was standing on a ladder on and looking down and this was at Prudence's house on the paper. And I started to see uh, all the patterns throughout all the pictures in the paper. And they, at that moment, I realized that every single piece of data in the sessions was on. Every single piece of data in the sessions was on based on one hypothesis. And that hypothesis was that these beings were moving themselves through a signal both physically and non-physically that they projected from another part of the universe and that the Arecibo radio telescope was picking this up, this intelligence signal. So, so when I was the first viewer in after, you know, I'm, you know, as a remote viewer, um, you don't typically analyze your own work. You have to take special precautions when you analyze your own work, but we had probably 14 remote viewers on this project with, I don't know how many sessions. Um, I was the first viewer in, I didn't know anything about it, so I was fully blind. And when I was viewing this, these, when you're viewing, um, the longtime viewers know this, is that these beings who have a broader consciousness have the ability to interact with you. So, you know, if you're like sitting there probing them uh, on, a, on a piece of paper, you know, you, you can get probed back, you get poked back, and their consciousness turns towards you and you can feel this. So... So when I was doing that session, that's what happened. And, you know, it's not, when you're, when you haven't experienced that to a very large degree, you're a, you're a little bit freaked out, but you're also, you also have this seeming barrier between you and it. And so you don't take it a hundred percent seriously until they come forward. So what happened was, um, I can't remember how long after this was. It wasn't that long after. I was at home, I was with my, um, my ex-wife and we were eating dinner. And there was this strange phenomena happening in the hallway where this light was kind of spinning down the hallway. I caught a brief glimpse of it while she's just staring at it. And immediately after that, I felt really tired. So I went to bed and I'm laying there. I completely passed out in nearly immediately, which is unique for me. And I mean, you do find that in some of these um, abduction type scenarios where people will just kind of pass out. And so as I was in this dream, immediately went into a dream of being in space where there was... Um, it was like I was in this like space pod that just looked old and janky and rusty and I was stuck. I was trapped. And I remember in the dream, it's like we were working on a project that had to do with treasure hunting. 
And that was like the biggest thing on my mind at that point in time. And so, so I, I was trying to get saved from this craft stuck in space. And I was trying to somehow radio down to my remote viewers. So we have something called a, a communication protocol. Uh, and it's, it's a telepathic uh, methodology that uh, I had created back in those TDS days. And, and so I had trained the viewers on the professional team in that methodology. And I was trying to get them to telepathically communicate with something out there to help me get down. But right when that happened was when these beings came, like right when it happened, they heard me. And that was the moment where I was starting to get like poked awake. So I'm getting like kind of shook, poked awake. And, and I'm wanting to just stay in this dream because it was, it was just extremely lucid. And so, so when I grabbed the arm, I thought it was my wife. I grabbed the arm. It was, it felt strange to me. So I just bolted awake and there was this thing standing in front of me that was, you know, you're looking like three to four feet high. It had this head that was shaped like a, um, a football. It was probably about this big, the, the wideness of the head. It was shaped like a football. It had all these like brown splotches on its head. Its, its eyes were like just these little tiny black dots, kind of like, like a shark's eyes. And it had this sort of like translucent nose to it, or these, it had a protrusion that I assume was a nose. And, and then it had these spindly kind of limbs that were going down. And there was one movie that I saw later on that it, it kind of reminded me of and um, what was that movie with, um, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie. I'll, it'll come back to me. But when I saw this movie, I thought, man, these things look very similar to that, especially the, the, the spindly limbs. So anyway, this thing is, this thing is standing there in front of me and I'm freaking out. I'm like bordering on screaming because like having that, like if you're fully conscious, I, I've, I've gone through experiences that have come back to me where I haven't been fully conscious yet. I'm engaged with, you know, graves or whatever. And there's a certain amount of subduing that happens to the mind when you're involved in these situations, but there was no subduing of the mind here. And if it was a gray, I probably would have went up and snapped its neck. Right. Because, you know, I mean, who probably wouldn't. So, so I, I, as I was like starting to ramp up with my emotions, it projected into my head that it was, it was actually hurting it. That my emotions were actually causing it to feel like I was throwing like bricks at it. And so at that point, I just, I held back a little bit because it wasn't like, it wasn't like this thing was going to, it was showing me vulnerability in that moment, even though it's like this weird visceral response of something so foreign in front of you, you don't know what to do with. I mean, have you ever seen a face in the dark that looks like something else and it shocks the heck out of you? And then you look again, you go, oh, oh, it's, it's my brother. What, what, why did his face look so weird? Right? So, so we have this, this, this reaction to things that we aren't used to seeing. So I was having this reaction. So immediately on the heels of that, it said, we are from the signal, which was that project that we worked on and we're here to help you and we want you to help us. 
so that was the that was pretty much the extent of that experience. And then later on, they would show up. So I'd just be sitting here, you know. Um, I remember one time I was with my son, and we we're just sitting there, and I was drinking a cup of coffee. It was the morning, and this is in Southern California. And this this blue orb about this big appears out of nowhere and just starts floating around and circles out of, around my coffee cup and and just goes away. And so these guys started to show up in that form as well. So they would show up in, in two different ways, either physically, which was way more rare than the straight up, you know, showing themselves as a little light floating around. So because of that, and because of what they wanted me to work on, wanted my team to work on, um, we did a project on the fireflies in Malaysia. I mean, it was, it was kind of weird to me because you know, you know how we think about bugs in general. I mean, we can be pretty brutal species, humans. And, and we don't take into consideration the consciousness of other beings. And I think that is, and I, and I regret, like, even thinking that way in the past, that, you know, a bug is something that you don't care about. A bug is something that you can squish. Yet, here's a species who is telling me and our remote view data is reflecting that they're reliant on this life form, which is a great consciousness, a grand consciousness in order to have their world carry forward because they and them are intrinsically linked in an evolutionary way that spans multi-dimensions. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, I guess, a brief little overview on the fireflies. Uh, not, not only wanted to, to thank you for that, but quick question, do those blue orbs are like kind of, kind of translucent? These blue orbs would mostly be just solid balls. They, they never really showed up as super translucent. Yeah. Now I see, like I see, um, I see blue flashes of light, you know, this big all the time, but it's not them. And I know a lot of people see blue flashes of light um, just because we've remote viewed, you know, what, what's John seeing? Um, this is something totally different. Um, so don't, don't think that just because you see a blue uh, flash of light or ball flying around that it is, is them, it may not be. Got it, thank you very much for sharing. You're welcome. Okay, uh, next was Don, you've been with your hand up for a while. Okay. Can you hear me? All right. All right, John. <clears throat> Good to see you again. Uh, when we were in class together, uh, one of the students asked you, uh, have you been remote viewed and did you know it? And you said that you were aware of it. And I was just curious what your perceptions were when you were remote viewed. Did you feel anything buzzing around you? Did you have a mental vision of something you know can you articulate yeah are you being remote viewed don uh i've had perceptions that i might have been and i'm just comparing yeah that's what i figured um so for me now this is not going to be the same for everybody um for me what what would happen would be okay so i would feel this kind of tingling and pressure coming on my back. And that's typically how it starts. But 
that is also how I know that there's any other kind of presence around as well from ghosts to whatever, right? They usually come in through that way. That's usually where I feel them first. And um, so when I start to feel that, I usually close my eyes and I begin to extend my senses to understand what's going on. And with regard to remote viewers, what happens is that when I close my eyes, the focus gets tighter from them. So there's like this, when I, when I close my eyes to sense, I can sense the tightness of their focus. So that's different than something, let's just say from another realm, because that's usually a bit more spread out. So the remote viewing focus is much tighter. And then when, because it's so tight, it ends up where I can see the face of the remote viewer. So that's usually, that's, that's how I know. So it will be a human face and I will know that they have a, a physical body um, and that they're extending their consciousness in order to perceive me and what I'm doing. So that's how I know. Do you hear sounds? Do you hear taps? I haven't, no, I haven't heard sounds. Um, I haven't heard sounds. I haven't heard voices. I haven't heard anything like that, that I've been aware of. Do now, you, do you perceive anything touching you? Um, with remote viewers? No, but with other beings, I've been grabbed and held and like, yeah, absolutely. With other beings, never with remote viewers. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks, Don. Okay. Well, as there are no hands up for a minute, I, I want to ask you a question of my own, um, from your book. It seems like a, one big, large chronicle of, um, intimidation and alleged black ops against uh, TDS. Um, can you go a bit more into that? I mean, do, do, do you really know why that went on? Do you have an understanding? Because, you know, you're kind of at the same time when you're kind of saying uh, you're working for the FBI and you're working on projects like um, terrorist attacks and stuff, it seems to be a bit weird that there might be another uh, intelligence agency or, or someone out there doing That's some kind I of intimidation. Thought. Yeah. So, so what I, what I came to find out was that there's a, um, okay. So the intelligence agencies are more or less separate from each other. They have their own goals. And some of these agencies have a little bit of fighting towards each other where it was like, we would be working with somebody in another agency. And this is nothing that would ever be on the books. It would literally just be backdoor stuff. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And then, you know, what you're looking at, you're looking at like captains, um, kind of mid-level managers in intelligence who are looking for specific answers to questions to projects that they're involved in. And so they go around the whole system. And that was something that I didn't necessarily realize. So, So we had certain people that we worked with in various agencies, but there was one agency that we never did anything for. And, and that agency, because it rolled out the declassification of remote viewing, was the one that was interested in making us go away. While there were others who were interested in working with us because we had more novel approaches at that point in time than what had happened in the past. So, so it was very confusing to me too. Um, I, I didn't know how to take it because number one, this had been declassified. 
And I, I thought that, well, I thought we lived in a free country and if something's declassified, you can do with it what you will, because that means it's given to the public. But what I come to realize was that this was supposed to be sort of this like protected declassification rollout into the public as opposed to a free for all. And you have to think about it too, because if something like this gets given to the public, why would you tell the public, here's a technology for you, you can know all our secrets. You know, there's gonna be some kind of pushback, there's gonna be some kind of blowback. And for whatever reason, because I think we were popular enough, because I think we had different approaches to it and had enough interest and we were funded that they decided that we needed to go. Now, we worked, we battled against that for a long time. Um, it, most, of the, most of the focus was on prudence. And I would get focus on as well, but it wasn't nearly as much as what was happening to her. I mean, it was, it was a literal nightmare for her. And, and eventually what happened is that they started to go after the viewers. And that really was our Achilles heel because, like, you know, I'll sit there and take it. She'll sit there and take it because we felt like this is something so important to pursue and to keep going with and to try to bring to the world that, you know, when they went after the viewers, it's like they were more innocent than us. And at that point, it was like, well, we just have to stop because we don't want any of them to get hurt or killed or messed with mentally. Um, I mean, I don't know how many death threats we had on us from this covert group, but it was quite a few, quite a few. And so it was like, Prue and I could deal with that together. You know, we dealt with that together and alone. But once it started to move outside of us to our wider working group, it became a little bit more, oh no, what are we gonna do about this? So we had to, I mean, we had to shut it down. And after that, you know, I just went into this, I was, I was upset, you know, I was, because I, okay, so now here's the other thing too, is that Prue had a different idea than me. She, she wanted to be very public about everything. I just wanted to keep my head down and work. That's it. I didn't want publicity. I didn't want anything. And, and she, I mean, so it was this constant sort of like back and forth between us on this, where I would lecture her about it and then she would just do whatever she wanted. And, and so, so that was like this, this somewhat point of contention. But after we closed down, I was like, I have to do this. I have to keep going with this because this is, this is too important and I have to be public about this and keep going with this because the more people that learn this, the more it can influence the outcome of some type of hopefully consciousness shift on this planet. If I could just ask a couple more before we move on to Russell, who's got his hand up next. Um, do you think Prue might have brought some of this uh, interest from her prior work? And because, you know, uh, Courtney and Prue, I think, are kind of said and claimed that they were set up with the Farsight Hellbop thing. Do you think it came from that and then followed her to what you did? And another thing is, um, you know, Prue has left the scene ever since. Do you have any contact with her since? Do you think she might ever come back or 
give me or someone else an interview at some point? So, um, yeah, so, so I do think that it also came from that, from the early days. I, I do believe that it came from, um, so Prue had a ton of, she was very psychic, like really, really psychic. And I never actually considered myself a psychic. You know, I never thought that I was a psychic person at all. Um, I was just open. And, and I actually still don't really consider myself psychic. I consider myself more of a remote viewer. I guess that is being psychic, but you know, a lot of remote viewers don't consider themselves psychic. Um, it's funny, right? But so yes, so Prue was very psychic. She had the contacts with the gray dude, that gray being, and, and that started to come in with all the messages from the gray dude when she was at the Farsight Institute. And it was in that time frame that, from what I understand, that that harassment had begun. So yeah, I believe that it started there. And the second part, have you spoken to her since? Is she... Um, I have contactable I have to her since um, she is, she is doing her family. She's doing her family and doesn't have an interest in this realm anymore at all. Okay. Yeah. But if she ever pops up, you'll be the first to know. Yeah. It would be great to get a bit more, yeah. bit more of the story from her side. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Russell, would you like to go next? Yes. Hi, John. I've been really looking forward to this talk and I appreciate your uh, candid descriptions of these telepathic interactions going on that a lot of people in remote viewing um, try to kind of put aside or ignore. So when you say coming after, are you talking about like they got an email that said we're going to kill you or are you also talking about psychic attacks? Well, it's both. It's not email. It would never come in email. It would usually come over the phone. Um, the phone. So when you were talking to somebody on the phone, it would it would start making a funny noise, clicking. This is this was when we used landlines mostly, mm -hmm. um, and it would make a funny noise, start clicking, and then somebody else would come on and say, "Stop what you're doing, or we'll kill you." Or Prudence's house was vandalized with, uh, "We'll kill you." We'll, you know, you're you're a slut, you're a whore. We're gonna kill you. That kind of thing. So it would come, you know, mainly in those two ways. Yeah. So in, in terms of the, the psychic attacks, um, what, did your uh, viewers experience some of that themselves? Yes. Some of the viewers experienced that. Um, the psychic attacks were like this. So for, my, for me, um, what happened with me was that, or Prue, was that we would get, first off, we would get a phone call. It would be the I'll kill you sort of thing. Um, or we'd get some kind of warning through some other method. Um, and then what would happen is that Prue and I would often meet after those to discuss them. And we try to always meet in a public place. And what would happen was sometimes there would be this while we were meeting, it was like being remote influenced okay. um, where, where you would begin to feel, we, both of us at the same time, we begin to feel this really incredible dark, evil, creeping sensation make its way into our bodies and just like light up every aspect of our brain into fear. So it was like, it was like they would use sort of physical things and then they would use like, um, like these, these type of psychic attack methods uh, to come after us. 
Was there any symptomology like, uh, say, ringing of ears or, um, you know, like a cloud around your head or, uh, you know, voices not audible? But I mean, I guess I'd like to know as much detail as possible about how you guys subjectively experienced it. So, okay, so, so what would happen specifically, like, there was a difference. So in, in, in one instance, it would be like, you could, so I would feel somebody remote viewing me and then I could see their face. So right there at that moment, um, and I could feel that focus, that pointed, pointed focus mm -hmm. at that moment, whatever they're trying to do becomes absolutely ineffective. It basically just stops because your awareness goes into them and you know that anything that they try to influence you with is is just gonna fall flat so there's something else so if you if you don't become aware of it you start to have you start to get more paranoid there's like this subtle paranoia that starts to run through you and and you start to get sensations and feelings that you don't normally have so for me it like turns into this thing where where if I'm being psychically attacked and I'm not aware is that my my normally like happy mood starts to turn very dark mm -hmm. and drop down and bec I become more depressed and more focused on paranoia. So the other thing that happens is that sometimes there would be this tingliness, like on the edges of your skin, it almost felt like it was just outside of your skin that would start at the feet it would start like at the bottom of the feet and the tingliness was accompanied by a feeling of some kind of evil. That's all I can describe it as mm -hmm. some kind of evil beyond anything else. And it would just make its way up your body. It's like your whole body starts to go goosebump, but from the bottom up instead of the top down yeah. and this tingly sensation on the edges until it reaches your brain it's like you could, you could just watch it and it seems to move slow. Mm -hmm. And by the time it gets to your brain, it's like, I'm going to die right now. I'm going right. to die right now. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill me right now. And so that kind of thing would happen as well. And that was the more palpable side of it, the absolute total more palpable side. So there was one time that, that I, was, I was like my mood had shifted pretty quickly. And it was weird to me because see, I was living, I was living in a Zen center um, in, a, in a large portion of, um, of my life doing the TDRV think tank. And I could live in the Zen center as well as run this think tank with Prue because this was a lay center, right? It wasn't like a full monastic situation, but I spent most of my time meditating. And so I was usually pretty aware of, you know, what was going on with me. So, so when my mood shifted really fast this one time, I was like, okay, that's not normal, but I didn't notice the, the feeling coming in at first. And so I closed my eyes and I went into what was going on. And at that moment, right when I shifted, it was as though the remote viewer or whoever it was, was trying to remote influence me. And so I caught this stream that was, it wasn't like a physical sensation. It was going into my mind, into my gut, into my whole like emotional system, specifically on how 
how I would be killed. So, so that was like an aspect that I thought was really interesting where um, I missed the first part of it. And it seemed as though the second part was directly influenced, influencing me on getting fear around a certain method of death, yeah. which wasn't even in my head at all at that moment. Right. Not that you need confirmation, but subjectively myself and my housemates um, have had similar experiences, including these uh, brilliant light fields that would just swirl in the middle of the living room and we could just sit right there and go, you know, what the hell? Now, uh, I don't mean to push it too far, but I do, I do want to try to pick your brain on a couple more things. So you talked about this uh, agency. So when you've had these, these, uh, I guess, generated panic attacks, which I've also experienced myself, you just an irrational fear. And I agree 100%. As soon as you become aware of it and attribute it to a source, it vanishes. Uh, there's another person here, and I won't call them out by name, but we <clears throat> had done some work together and were able to literally tune into and see this uh, facility, if you will, that this type of uh, invasion was coming from. When you are talking about this, this agency, um, would you suggest from your direct experience that there are, whether they're contractors or whether they're official government, doesn't matter, that somebody took off with um, remote viewing and or remote influencing technology that has a vested interest in say monitoring someone like you and Prue um, who may be doing, you know, damage to their infrastructure, if you will. Do, do, did you ever get a sense of who or where these attacks were coming from? And I'm not asking you to name names or put yourself back in that limelight, but just even a generality. You know, that was so, okay. So when all that stuff was going on, um, I was tasked with figuring it all out. And, and it was, so you I have to understand like every, all the viewers are decentralized. They're not in one location. And mm -hmm. so anything that you task them on um, is really more or less going to be known. You're working on a computer, you're receiving sessions, et cetera, et cetera. So I was really careful not to like go too deep into it because part of me also just wanted to be somewhat blind to it mm -hmm. at the same time and just deal with things as they came so that I could keep going and not know that the total depths of it. Um, so, you know, there, there's a balance that you like, okay, you get think about like the resources that others can have up against your resources. So it was obvious that there were more resources. And I know, you know, when you get into um, any type of military type operations, whether it's military or not military type, you have, mm -hmm you have a mission goal and an objective to reach. And until, because you have so much funding, so much money behind you and, and, and so much uh, resources, you can keep going for as long as you want up against, up against who? Up against right. an artist, up against a couple people who are interested in, in, in seeing what we can do with this cool thing. 
that was created by them. So, so there was a certain like amount of like push and pull that I had with really truly trying to figure it out and understand. I wasn't like, I was of the mind, like, I don't have any resources to fight this. And if I look deep into that whole structure of what's coming after us, would that stop me from doing what I feel like I really need to do here? And I kind of felt like it would. I kind of felt like if, if, I, if I got right down to it, it would have scared the ultimate hell out of me and I would have just backed out because I had a young son and a wife mm-hmm. and I wanted to protect them too, you know? Yeah. So, there, so while we did look a, like into these like edges of it, we didn't go full on. And the other thing too you have to think about is that so as remote viewers, we're all on a schedule. We are doing, um, I'm doing two sessions a day, five days a week, same with the other viewers. And, and, and we're working on projects for people. We, are, we have clients, we're doing this, we're doing that. And now I've got to step outside of that and try and figure out the whole apparatus that's trying to shut us down. For me, it was like kind of this race, like how much can I possibly get done on the side of actually doing something cool Versus like moving into a zone where I'm just protecting myself. Yeah. So, so I figured at a certain point I would just be killed. That's what I thought. And that's probably what was what I was supposed to think. And so I figured, well, if I'm going to be killed, then I'm just going to run as fast as I can to some finish line I create. Okay. And I fully understand that. And also I have felt that, uh, you know, same anxiety, I guess, I guess, if you will. And and I do think it's a planted anxiety. So let's just back up and then be just a tiny bit more general. For, for instance, are you, you're aware of uh, Pat Price? Okay. Where he talked about that these agencies have um, what effectively would have to be called humans, as Ingo referred to them, not born here, in every location within government, not so much to control the government or the people, as he put it, but to deter discovery or disclosure. Would you, would you even give some credence to that there might be, because when Ingo talked about the four encounters he had with these uh, humans not born here, he talked about him being able to pick up their strong telepathy, and then basically he said he turned around and hauled ass. Yeah. So, would you give any credence whatsoever to believing there could be enhanced or um, um, stronger telepaths somehow dispersed or involved in government agencies to to deter discovery? Absolutely. I okay. mean, we've seen, we've seen stuff like this. Yeah. Okay. All right. Look, I, I literally have like 46 more questions. I genuinely thank you for your time. And I appreciate you opening up the mystical here. There's a lot of things that, uh, you know, I put forth and then it comes back that, well, no, this isn't that way and, and, and so forth. I fully believe and understand what you're saying. And, and for me, it's also been a reality. It appeared to have been a reality for Pat Price and numerous other uh, viewers who claim to have been spotted. And uh, I, I believe what you're saying. So thank you, John. Thanks, Russell. Thanks there, Russell. Uh, Don, you're up next again. You're still muted. 
Okay, John, we've got a theoretical question here for you, but uh, let's have some fun. <clears throat> At the start of this meeting, you mentioned um, intellects that could block or obfuscate your perception. Uh, Joe McMoneagle talked about being put in a box. Uh, you mentioned it. Uh, the Farsight team has mentioned it. And I know that you try to figure these things out. And the question is, you know, in your mind, what sort of being is capable of first detecting you and wanting to enclose you in some sort of bubble that you can no longer perceive? You must have some ideas on you this. You got to wonder, right? Yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, it's weird. So I went into this whole thing a couple of years ago about because I remember this one point where, where we were remote viewing something on Mars, for instance, and all the remote viewers were reporting like auditory alarm sounds when they went into this location, like auditory, like it was like they were, I, I had gone into it and I'd heard alarm sounds. Other remote viewers had gone into it and they heard alarm You sounds. mean like a bell ringing or something? Yeah, yeah, like, rah, 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 you know, somebody's here kind of situation. Now, was that sort of like a metaphorical situation in the data? Or was it straight up something, something physical in the data? I don't know. But it got me to, to begin to think down the path of, well, if there's some type of technology that um, can be used to uh, capture the signal of a remote viewer, to capture the energy of a remote viewer. So I started to, um, um, I, I started to actually build um, very sensitive static, uh, static electricity devices and then run remote viewers on those devices to see if I could set any sort of tick on the meter um, with the static devices. And, you know, I mean, eh, static may not be it, but there was some indication that there was, there is possibly a field on that side. Now, it also could be that I can't build it and I don't have enough of a, of a pure environment to, to hold one of those with no other influences. And then you have the idea of DC voltmeters. So actually one thing we were looking at, we were remote viewing straight up. If there was anything in the um, consumer arena in ghost hunting equipment that could capture the, the signal of a remote viewer, right? So, we, so we're trying to figure this out to see if there's anything that could be used. And we're, you know, probably reinventing the wheel when we go into this kind of stuff, because, of, you know, this, this research has probably already been done. Now, I think that I do have a feeling that there is, there are technologies that can sense the field of a remote viewer, very subtle technologies that we don't know about. But I also think that there are fourth dimensional consciousness constructs. Think about the fourth dimension. The dimension of imagination, the dimension of remote viewing. In that dimension, you can create anything, which is an aspect of us. It is what we do when we remote view. We don't, we, we go into that sort of fourth dimensional beyond realm, bring back information. But within that realm, you can create things. And some of the stuff that we've seen within that realm, when you get into beings who exist more in that state, have what are like devices, things that they create within that realm in order to do things, in order to sense if a remote viewer is there. 
So do you, I think th- do you feel these are like ETs or are these more like incorporeal beings that are more multidimensional, multidimensional ET, whatever you want to call it. Um, ET is ET is less rare than multidimensional mm. or more rare, more rare, sorry, than multidimensional. But do we you, do, perceive them as ET because, hey, you know, they maybe probably come from another planet. I, you know, in general, I, I think multidimensional is more apt because of all around us right now. Can't you feel them? We exist in a stacked multiverse. There are beings who can move through them, the, the multiverse. And so there are lots of beings who are interested in what humans are doing. Lots. Do you think they're trying to like obfuscate you or enclose you or whatever, just because they really want to get back to work and they don't want to deal with this buzzing thing? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting is that a lot of new viewers that I train, um, this happens every single class where I'll probably have two or three viewers that I train will come to me and tell me that they were greeted by somebody from another realm outside of remote viewing once they started to remote view where somebody from another realm came to them and it was like, you know, I'm watching you kind of thing. Or they see the man in the black hat that tips their hat at them. So there's, so, so when a person begins to expand their consciousness and realize more of their multidimensionality, it attracts other beings because most humans are sitting here with blinders on you know, going after food, money, and watching television and staying within this tight little construct, this tight little box. But when you start to extend it outside into these other realms where these other beings exist, they're going to take notice of you. It's inevitable. John, can but I hey, just interrupt it, very, it's the very life quickly? Of the mind, and most people who do this are thought of as being crazy. I just want to ask a really quick follow-up question to that. The people, the viewers you've trained, who are the ones who've had those experiences where they've seen Hatman, are there any common factors? Um, is there anything you could say that makes those viewers more likely to have those experiences? You mean any common factors between the remote viewers that are learning it? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, is, is it the ones who are more open to that stuff and not the skeptical? No, not ones, necessarily. Or? No, I mean, it, it, it seems pretty random to me. Of course, uh, psychologically, I don't get to know my students that in depth unless they stick around with me for a while. But, but it has been, like, I would say the most predominant report is the one of the black hatted man tipping its hat um, to these new remote viewers. And yeah, it's just anybody and everybody. And, you know, when somebody begins to learn remote viewing, it's kind of like, (laughs) if they haven't done this kind of stuff before, all of a sudden they're engrossed in trying to move their mind out into wherever into another world and so they're constantly going to be thinking about it practicing it and it is it is something that is so foreign and so new to them that it sort of blows them out of their mind in the beginning right and so they they really extend themselves outside of themselves and i think that's in part why it happens because like i like other than just beings who are coming at me um i have never experienced that I have never experienced that myself. No, I haven't. I just think it's really interesting that you've got yeah, Chinese right. remote viewers seeing the hat man. Because, I mean, that's uh, yeah, a, I mean, I'm a recognized phenomenon. Loads of psychic students see hat man. 
Right. Um, it's, it's sort of similar right. to the Men in Black thing, right? But right. Actually, I don't know what it is. I've never met him. It'll be something to, to remote view, I think. Trying to figure out. <laughs> you do you, man. <laughs> uh, John, just one quick uh, last one on this sit theme. Uh, when you do encounter some sort of block, do you have a standard technique that you use to try to escape, get around, or you know, get past that? Well, I'll do I'll do movement exercises. So so what I noticed is that um, if some kind of block happens, it, it if I if I start to like so in the matrix when you're doing movement exercises, I don't know how many of you do that, but, but you'll, you'll ask yourself to move to certain positions in order to get different perspectives on things. So when I do that, start to do that quickly is when I'll start to get bits and pieces of information as opposed to being stuck in one zone. So, so what I've, and that help, helps with other viewers as well. Not, not everybody, but that helps with other viewers as well, especially if they're being monitored. Do you have to you do that quickly? I typically do it quickly, yeah, no. because there's this propensity to want to get caught up in, in this sort of like weird semi-feel-good zone that's being projected. And so you want to just have them go in and out, dip in and out. And, and when you have them find some, if you have them grab onto something physical that is perhaps related to past data in the session or other sessions regarding it, then you can have them trail down that path. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Don. Uh, Darby, you're up next. You've had your hand up for a while. Thanks. Thanks, John, for coming on tonight. Thanks. For this, for hosting it, uh, John, uh, are you still uh, getting uh, attacks or threats? And if not, why do you think that that? I probably don't because because of of these that things. <laughs> so so these days. <laughs> so think about it back then, like back in the day. Um, being monitored meant that um, they would have to put a tracking device on your car. They would have to um, uh, somehow tap your uh, landline or put bugs in your house. Um, these days, we have these on us. These you are the yourself. tracking devices. Right? <laughs> now, as far as attacks go, I wouldn't say that anything's going on, nothing, which, which is good. Um, and I think that probably has to do with, in part, like, you know, when we shut everything down, well, the operation's over because that's exactly what was supposed to happen. And so it was mission accomplished, right? Um, and then I moved back into doing this in a public way. Um, and there's nothing that's, that I know of that is you know, threatening to shut me down more, you know, I mean, access to everything on my computer is just a given and my whereabouts and what I talk about. And that's why it's, I'm just public, you know, there's nothing secretive about what I do. Well, well, you're still teaching. So in that essence, it wasn't shut down. Is it the, the clients that you were, that, that the operation was seeing back then that you aren't, 
uh, assisting now that was shut down? Do you think that's part of it? Like we got shut down because of the clients we were working with? No, do you think that you don't have the attention on you now because you're not serving the clients that you used to serve? Is that the piece you know, I don't that know. caused? Yeah, I have no idea. Not sure. Not sure at all. Um, well, see, the thing is, is that when, okay, after, right after 9-11, um, we were asked to uh, look at, um, like, we were asked to look, go into counterterrorism, right? So, so we, we had been harassed, like, quite a bit to that point. And I thought personally that, you know, us going into that realm and, and working very closely in that realm, because we did a lot, a lot of work um, on counterterror. And, and I thought that erroneously that it would, it would create a situation where it led up on the harassment, but it didn't. In fact, it got worse. So I don't think that it was anything to do with, you know, who we were working with or uh, whatnot as far as that goes. Okay. One uh, other different, different topic. You talked at the beginning of the call about at some point, rather than the quest for information that you're drawn to remote viewing as a tool to know the self. And I wondered if you could expand on that a little bit as far as how that works for you or maybe other, other students uh, as far as using remote viewing as a tool to, to know the self. I think I, I'm assuming everybody here um, knows some type of remote viewing methodology that came from uh, the research done at SRI. Um, I'm assuming, but I don't know for sure. So in remote viewing, you have a, um, you have what we, we call an AOL or a deduction. And it's an analytical overlay. It's something that is, is a high conceptual representation of what a person is remote viewing. It's something that they come to a conclusion with using a high level concept. And, and we use these high level concepts in our daily life uh, in order to understand what things are pretty much to either run away to, from it or eat it. You know, it's, it's a survival thing to come to a conclusion quickly um, in order to know what it is and categorize it. Now in remote viewing, we typically want to stay in low level sensory information um, as opposed to coming to these high level conclusions, but you cannot help to come to high level conclusions based off of low level information. We're just trained to do that as humans. Now, when you go into a spiritual practice, when you go into, for instance, Zen, um, what do you do there? What do you do in Zen? You, you are looking inside yourself to let go of aspects of who you think you are so that you can see reality for what it is, so that you can perceive clearly what this is in this moment. And in order to do that, you have got to let go of every shred of yourself, of your ideas about you. So think of the AOL in a remote viewing session as an idea of the low level information. So all low level information typically leads in AOL to a high level conclusion about that thing. That's why we drop our AOLs off to the side and we go back in, try to get low level information. But we're quite often convinced 
that the AOL is it. A lot of new viewers will do this. They'll get stuck in an AOL drive where they will believe what their AOL is. And we do that in our lives as well. So we create a self-identity based off of low-level impacts on our nervous system that lead us to a conclusion about who we are and what this is. And in order to know the self, you've got to let go of all those things. You have to become completely, totally empty to know what this moment is, to know what reality is. So remote viewing is actually a process, a training process to a certain degree. Of course, it creates a story about something, but it is the practice of letting go of something so that you can go back into a basic sensory zone over and over and over again until you realize what that zone feels like and what it is, and you stay out of the ideas of it. I mean, ideas, those things in our life, the ideas that we have about ourselves and about the world around us, we will fight to the death over. We'll get in wars over these ideas about what we think is true and not true. But in order to know the self, you have to let go of it, let go of everything, which leads you to a place of joy, which leads you to a place of bliss, as opposed to the, the zone of suffering and ideas. So my interest in remote viewing, I, I, don't, care. I don't care about information. I mean, it was, it was created to get information on things, but remote viewing the term is even erroneous for the process of it. <laughs> it, it, it implies two things that aren't necessarily there. Now, remote viewing the term is a good term for what it produces in the 3D world, right? It is a very good term and it's a very sexy term. But think about the process of remote viewing. What's happening when you do this? So you're closing your eyes and you are not just getting viewing like imagery, you're getting all the senses. You're getting general senses of knowingness, you're getting smells, you're getting tastes, you could feel textures. It's all your senses and beyond. So it's not specifically about viewing something. And most people think of it as you are actually perceiving. It's like a, a movie mind. No, it's not necessarily like that. Then the other side of it, what do you do? You close your eyes and you go inside yourself and you feel. You don't, you don't have to close your eyes. You're just focused internally. So when you're focused internally, you are going inside yourself to perceive what you think is outside of you. So remote viewing, I mean, you know, they could have called it demonstrations in oneness, but I mean, that wouldn't have like captured much attention. Um, remote viewing sounds much better, but, but that's what it is because you cannot perceive something that is outside of you because everything is inside of you. Um, now take the, I don't know if you guys know about the structural differential, but I use this as a, as a method, as a training tool, um, Alfred Korzybski in 1930s, general semantics, he created something called the structural differential. And I use this as a model for, um, we are always impacted like by the mad dance of electrons. And all of this happens in silence and it impacts our nervous system. And then what's impacting our nervous system, we take into language and symbology. And the ideograms are that bridge between the silent zone 
where something is impacting our nervous system and the symbolic language zone, where we start to turn it into language. Now the danger in life and the danger in remote viewing is believing the language zone. That's the danger. Now people who spend most of their time in the silent zone, in, in those subtle sensations impacting their nervous system, ultimately go into a place of a sensation of oneness with everything. Remote viewing, it's showing you that you are everything just by the act of doing it. I hope that answers it. Yes, thank you. Excellent, thanks for that. Uh, up next is Sari. Hi, uh, it's uh, Sariel. Sariel, but my name is Rose, actually. Hi, Dave, uh, John. Hi. It's so great to meet you. Um, I, feel, I feel I need to explain to you why I'm here because um, it's a bit of an interesting story how I discovered remote viewing. And uh, the reason why I was looking into it wasn't necessarily why I think that I was drawn to it. Um, I was researching remote viewing and I just started looking at YouTube videos and I found your old videos about your experiences, um, you know, beginning with remote viewing and then in, on into your experiences of being stalked and some of the negative things. And I started thinking, wow, this sounds a bit familiar. <laughs> And, uh, and then something really interesting happened. I mean, I was looking at videos of Dale Graff and Lynn Buchanan and Joe McMonagall and a lot of people. But all of a sudden, I started having synchronicities with images of you. It was so interesting. I started seeing you in ads on Facebook, television ads, ads on YouTube. You were looking like certain people in the news. Like I was a fan of the Toronto Maple Leafs who had hired this great new coach and they were doing really well. And then they got a new general manager who looked like you <laughs> and he fired my, my favorite coach. And then the Maple Leafs haven't done as well since. But I started thinking, okay, this is interesting, the synchronicity around, around you. And when I was looking at your story, I noticed that you would say that you were having a hard time avoiding ETs, that they seem to, you know, come looking for you. And I thought, well, I'd never heard that before. <laughs> and here I was getting sort of you sort of showing up spiritually in my view. This was a message to me that there was something important going on with you. And, and these aliens, and I've never, I'd never seen an alien. I didn't really, I mean, I always left room open, you know, for like the 1% chance that maybe there's aliens. Of course, there's probably maybe aliens, but I mean, I had no experience of them, except for one dream I had when I was like 13, but I wasn't really that interested. And, uh, and then I start. then I found Daz's group on Facebook. And I started, you know, looking more into 
the nuts and bolts and I started to be able to do remote viewing and I began to realize okay this is there's something really to this and uh I mean I I like the logic that you came up with that when you were getting verifiable feedback on your targets and then aliens would show up I mean if you're verifying what other things are there then the aliens are probably there. And that is the logic that really made me think, yeah, you know, you can't really deny if they're showing up when you're on a verified target. Like I started to become more open. And then I had an experience that I really, I guess I should share with you because I'd never seen an alien or heard from an alien or seen an alien craft in the sky and I was watching this Farsight video and Kamaya Dunson was talking about this alien she was viewing and she was talking about the shape of his head and I thought what's inside that head I suddenly got curious I took a piece of paper and I drew the alien head and then I sort of started to draw the brain I wondered what was going on with this brain. And there was a couple of extra parts on the temporal region. And then I started to know, like I was remote viewing, I guess, this alien all of a sudden. I feel like maybe I got entangled in the signal because I started to know that the temporal lobes that were additional were engineered and they were for telepathy. And then I knew that this alien could see through time. So he would see like time trails. And I thought that must be kind of spooky seeing like that. And then suddenly this thing started saying, well, I don't know how you can stand it not being able to see through time. And it sounded uh, seriously like Roddy McDowell. I just couldn't believe it. This little voice. And I, I said to myself, this thing is talking to me and it said it wasn't a thing it was a he and uh I kind of stepped back from the piece of paper <laughs> and I thought okay this is my imagination just getting way away with me here so I went to sleep and I think it was that night or the next night I woke up in the in the dream and I was dreaming about this alien but he wasn't like he was on the paper. He was glowing green, like glowing green. And his teeth could be seen through his face, which I had never imagined that an alien had teeth, but they were like grinning sort of through the skin that was translucent because it was illuminated like um, neon. Gross. Light. Rose, yeah. I'm sorry to interject, but do you have a question? Because it is, uh, I'm, I'm going to be the one who's going to be rude here, so I'm sorry, but you are rambling, and some people do ramble, and I'm sorry, but do you have a question? <laughs> um, well, I'm explaining um, an experience that I had for the first time to John, who I believe is instrumental in drawing me to this experience, so I'm sharing it with him. So, okay, well, um, let's keep it too long. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I had this dream and it was very frightening because the alien was, it was a moving 
but it wasn't walking. It was sort of zipping around inside of a spaceship. And it was very upset. He was very upset. He was extremely upset. And in the video with Kamaya Dunson and that particular story was about Mars and that there was some kind of war going on and possibly this alien had lost a colleague. So I figured that I was maybe dreaming about that scene. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know what to think about this. Um, I wonder what you think, but the fact that it was green or he is green and he's from Mars, you know, sort of made me feel a bit embarrassed to talk about it. But I mean, this was my experience. And uh, I've also had a few like visitations from other species based on some of the characters that the, they're seeing at Farsight. And I do get visitations from spirits. So this is very much like a spirit visitation that they kind of show up and, and I can see them and, and get certain forms of information depending on what they want to purvey to me. But um, I just wanted you to know that uh, it seems to me that possibly the aliens sort of drew me through you. And I don't that's, know what that's that means. Interesting. I mean, I, I, I mean, think think about the the timelines and dimensions, multi dimension, multi dimensional reality that we're in, and and think about how many other experiences are going on outside of that that you could potentially be part of. I mean, your conscious mind is is within this tight little zone in the physical realm. But outside of that, I mean, you dream at night and you do things that you have no idea what you're doing. And these things are within other realms, within other dimensions. And you can have bleed through. You can have bleed through on them where well, you'll have synchronicities. I felt like I was having, um, I felt like I was having a sort of entanglement in the signal that they were, that they were reading. But the other thing I wanted to say is I've been, I've studied quite a bit of physics and I've been thinking lately about Lorentz equation about how, I mean, what we are in is four dimensions, right? Three spatial dimensions and one of time. So we have a 4D time space matter energy. But in, real, in, in actuality, I, I am a proponent of string theory and I do believe there are 11 dimensions in that the mathematics, the current state of the art, the probability theory of quantum physics, you know, is an 11 dimensional theory. And we are separated from things and information in three dimensions plus time. But in 11 dimensions, there are symmetries and ways of connecting across space and time that make things much more accessible. And the Lorentz equation, uh, talks about particles that travel at the speed of light. And the faster a particle goes, the smaller the space gets between, between particles and everything else. So when you're traveling at the speed of light, there's no space or time between anything. Everything is completely immediate and available mm -hmm. 
to an entity traveling at the speed of light. And I've recently discovered that your consciousness is traveling constantly at the speed of light through time. It's part of an equation in physics. And I, I found it in Sabine Kossenfelder's site. If anybody wants to look it up, it's how your consciousness is traveling at the speed of light. So you're already at the speed of light. You don't have to do anything. You know, so really all of the whole universe is accessible to your consciousness just yeah. by that. Yeah. You know, the principle of physics. And so um, we aren't realizing, you know, the power of our, of our um, consciousness. Rose, 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 yeah, I, I yeah. need to interrupt you. Do you have a final question? Because we've got quite a lot of hands up. We need to move on. Um. No, that, I just wanted to share that with John and, and thank him for being so open and that I'm just really amazed to have. Well, thank, thank you for sharing. Okay, thanks, Rose. Uh, Russell, you're up next. Okay. So I've been wanting to have this conversation with, with somebody in remote viewing th that's had these subjective observations and honors them for so long. The, the question about detection, <clears throat> now Daz is working on a project with the estate to bring out, uh, in particular, uh, a session of Ingo uh, revisiting the moon, essentially with the intent to discover what happened to him the first time. And there was a, a, a pretty apt um, description of this detection system that involved uh, automaticities as well as uh, I guess what you could refer to as enhanced telepaths. So as Daz uh, puts this together and, and hopefully it'll be compiled in some sort of a book or however he works it out with the estate. Pat Price went into substantial elaboration on the detection system at what we might refer to as the underground basis yeah yeah i remember he did uh i remember the mount zeal uh in australia uh pat price session. yeah in in his actual full papers he goes into significant detail and it is a direct parallel to what ingo himself discovered on his uh, second visit to the moon mm -hmm. so with the presumed ability which i believe to be factual but uh, you know Obviously, it's, it's one of those matters that can't be proved. When people are, quote, unquote, snooping around or playfully investigating or being targeted on these uh, types of objectives, where it seems that one can be detected, what, what have you seen in terms of somebody walking away and possibly having uh, effects later on in their three-dimensional life, something very much like the hitchhiker uh, phenomena that is described now universally by um, Bigelow, by Knapp, uh, even Hal Putoff uh, told us personally in one of Paul's classes about mm -hmm. this phenomena. And then also I do notice uh, a question in the chat that, that pertains to this, so I won't go to that particular topic. Daz himself points out frequently, remote viewing is not a toy. 
so so for the benefit of of all and because i'm so fascinated with the correspondence between some of the experiences i've had and what what you're describing what what do you think about how like you said when when you became aware of these things poof it was like the awareness of them caused them to to dissolve or lose their effectiveness but those who are being impacted outside of their awareness so in effect, uh, you know, like stage five, where you go in and dredge up data that's come in, but hasn't made it up into awareness. If there are things attached to, uh, or as the consequence of one of these viewings that's kind of in your system and, and somewhat affecting you, but not aware of what have you seen in terms of negative, uh, I guess in particular, uh, interdimensional ET, contacts yeah I, I, I so i don't i don't i don't go after things at this point in time that are that are dark 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 um and that when you get into underground bases when you get into a lot of the stuff on the moon you are going into a realm where beings notice you and they can come and be part of your life to a certain degree, at least in a psychic way, where they'll begin to tune into you more and more and understand what you're doing and who you are. And so, so I will come across this stuff and I'll deal with it when I'm doing it, but I don't at this point actively go after it. I mean, I have had, I have had occasions where I've literally, I've had beings outside of my house after something that I've remote viewed, like they're knocking around on the walls, they're walking around and you can feel their energy encroaching where literally like I've had experiences where this is going on and I know that this is a really dangerous situation and they are trying to freak me out at the very least. So mm -hmm. I stay very calm, very still with no thoughts and meditate while this is going on. And then it eventually leaves. And because I've had so many of those types of experiences after viewing this stuff, I begin to treat carefully those things that I'm viewing. And do I need to do that for a specific reason? If I have a specific reason that ultimately is for a higher good, then that's what I'm going to do. If not, I'm going to leave it alone. But I do know that there is a control structure to a certain degree on this planet and on humans by these beings. So if there's something that goes into a high, like, like a higher vibrational, a good way of, of, of um, dealing with these beings, then I'll do it. And so sometimes what I'll do now, we're talking about like individual remote being sessions. So sometimes what I will do is I use a different methodology quite often these days and not on paper stuff. And I will use um, non-local non -local image streaming. So I call it non-local image streaming, where I will use a group of viewers that are experienced and along with a monitor. And, and they're always blind. And we will, we will go into sometimes locations like that as a group. And the group has more of a, and these people are not like 
people who are looking for dark things in general. These are viewers who are more interested in knowing themselves. And by that, liberating all beings, right? Because that's, I think, the way to do it. Because the less wounds and attachments that you have, the more all of this stuff is going to slide off of you. Mm-hmm. And so, so you have to like be working on yourself in a very deep spiritual way when you're doing this type of work, if it's going to be of any benefit, unless you're just going on adventures because you like this kind of stuff, you know, some people do, but I feel like at this point, like, like, at least for me, things have to be very directed in, in coming to some kind of like resolution with what's going on in this realm with these beings and with humans, as opposed to just like getting information on it. So when we go in, if they influence us, we influence them back. And so there's this greater power in going in with a group and having the group understand how to deal with these types of beings and a group connected to source energy, as opposed to their own uh, woundings that they have, because a lot of people will get involved with these things because they're wounded. You know, they're looking for something to fill a void, fill a gap. Um, So while you've got people who talk a lot about this kind of stuff, um, give information on the dark beings and that gets people excited about it. I really don't do a heck of a lot of talking about that um, because it, 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 it feels, I feel like it just freaks people out for one thing and leads them down a path where they get more scared. And I'm more interested in, 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 the, in the empowering side. Mm-hmm. And obviously when you get involved with remote viewing, I mean, you're going to want to know about that stuff. But I think that a person needs to work with themselves a little bit more before they completely dive into that stuff. And that's why I just don't task that, that yeah. kind of stuff in general. I mean, I know of plenty of like a friend of mine, Peter Maxwell Slattery, who has UFO encounters. Now he's got a mix of them, but a lot of these UFO encounters are of something that comes from a higher vibrational dimension. And when you get remote viewers viewing that kind of stuff, it actually has the propensity to change them on a certain level. You know, what we view affects us and what we view affects the thing you're viewing. So, so, I think we have to treat it responsibly in general, what we're doing to ourselves and what we're doing to other realms and beings when we're viewing. So I don't know if that answered your question, but I, I do have opinions on it that might run in a different direction than others. Oh, no, I, I agree 100%. And that synergistic effect of, of how so you say, a group, as you put it, connected to source um, with a certain spirit of benevolence is very important. I work in a telepathic modality completely separate from remote viewing where the end goal of these contacts is to kind of help the being remember who they were before they became what they're doing. One of the reasons that I asked this, um, I'm just uh, going through Ingo's archives and they're releasing a lot of really cool uh, stuff on his public archives. Well, they mislabeled, um, and Daz pointed this out to me, they mislabeled some things as CRV sessions when actually what they were was his solo auditing session. So when you referred to using a meter, um, he had basically a galvanic skin response meter. And what I found interesting was that he had a 1999 uh, second contact with the moon that Daz is in charge of eventually uh, publishing and releasing for us all. 
where um, that encounter led to him a year later and even two years later in a personal uh, solo auditing session trying to get those moon telepaths off his back. Oh, yeah. I mean, see, see now they're, they're going to be forever there. That's the thing of it. When you start viewing this stuff, it's just an inevitability. I mean, you just, it's just going to keep going. Yeah. So he, he uh, was still trying to figure out how, how can I disconnect from this connection that I made? But my only visceral, uh, I guess, logical or practical application to all the things um, I'm seeing from you and agreeing with is, you know, there are groups out there now just frequently targeting brand new people frivolously on these targets. And I've seen, and I've had people contact me privately that wouldn't ever do so in public, where they got some of these side effects and they were hung up and they were afraid and they didn't know what to do. So the reason I keep pushing it is not to make a fascination with the dark, but to more take advantage of your experience to, to yeah. make at least 49 people here step back one step and just think who or what am I connected to? What are, what are their capabilities in response to my own? And, and to just, I, I just feel driven to put the safety message out there. Um, and, and you've elaborated so much on, on these topics more so than I think anybody. And uh, it, it's just, it's refreshing. And also, I think the things that you're saying, um, you know, can literally benefit us all. In particular, the brand new people. I, I can't blame anybody for wanting to know these answers. I've been looking for answers for 43 years. You know, what's funny. I mean, no. like when I first got involved in remote viewing, it was like it was like a virgin on its on its wedding night. You know, because like everybody is is. Wow, let's view every single conspiracy and alien thing in the whole world. Let's just view yeah. the crap out of everything. And so like right when I started remote viewing, I'm like getting weird alien objectives. I'm, I'm like remote viewing serial killers in the moment of doing their horrible deeds. I'm remote viewing like there was no, we weren't snowflakes. You know what I'm saying? It was like, mm -hmm. like anything and everything that can be remote viewed, I was put on. And I understand like from like, like, like the, the, but I asked for that, right? Because I, I wanted to understand every single aspect of it. If somebody asks me for that, I will still like check in, feel inside myself and try and this is like further down the road stuff. If, right. If that. And so it's like, I will, I will um, put people through trading so that it's very directed on certain subjects where they can, it's like you're, you're, you're creating a psychic database of sensations to a certain degree with when you begin to learn remote viewing. And you're, it's like you're, oh, I know this sensation, this sensation relates to this and that. So you build these things up over time and it becomes very valuable at a certain point in a remote viewing career, if anybody even has one anymore, that you want to know all of this stuff mm -hmm. because you need to have this stuff in your database, so to speak. These experiences, this stuff from somebody getting murdered to horrible events, bio warfare, to uh, dark beings and aliens. 
because that becomes part of your, um, just your whole database. But you have to have a certain amount of spiritual depth to you before you can go into that. Because yeah. if you do go into that, it can break you. And I've seen remote viewers get broken by this kind of stuff. So, so be careful with it all. I mean, I think that's, I don't know. That's all I've got to say about it. I think that, I think that remote viewing at core leads a person into a spiritual life if they haven't had one before. Mm -hmm. And that, okay, so when I was living at a Zen center, I had this battle between, um, between just dropping everything with, with the world and just being all the time in meditation. But, you know, I was so attracted to remote viewing, what it was doing and looking for the root of creativity where, where I just had to keep going with it. But because of this struggle in myself, I was going to drop remote viewing. And the person who ran the Zen center, what they call the Roshi said, just out of the blue said to me, John, in order to be the best remote viewer you could possibly be, you've got to let go of every shred of yourself. You have to let go of who you think you are. You have to let go and become completely empty. And that to me, like brought these two worlds together into one thing where I didn't have to do anything because all I was doing was seeking myself through this stuff. And when you seek yourself, truly seek yourself instead of seeking information is when none of this stuff is going to affect you. And that's the place to come from. Oh, absolutely. I agree. All right. I'm going to do my very best not to raise my hand again, but I will say we've had many, many great uh, discussions in these Zoom chats, many wonderful guests. Today is uh, the biggest uh, surprise and um, exposition of things that I kind of harbor that I've heard somebody express so openly as you have. So with gratitude, thank, thank you for being here, John. Hey, thanks, Russell. Okay, um, next is David. You've been waiting a while. Hiya. Um, I've been really appreciating all the mysticism and uh, weird stuff, and this is stuff that's in my experience as well. But my question is a little bit more down to earth. Uh, John, I saw you, do, I can't remember where it was, um, given a talk about a, a target where there was some mounds in the earth and people thought it was UFOs and lizard people and whatever and you remote viewed it and found out that it was bird habitat. And I want to know about your strategies for tasking so that you can discern whether perhaps more numinous, exciting things which might attract viewers are real or, you know, how do you get the boring truth out of viewers when the truth is boring? Yeah, I mean, okay, so so as far as a uh, remote viewing team goes, I mean, it's really important that they mostly work targets. I like to call them objectives. Objectives with good feedback, um, with solid feedback, to, to, and, and to have it so varied that they never know what they're gonna get. Because I've seen a lot of viewers want to task down uh, just con specific concepts and ideas, and it can get difficult for new viewers because then they'll have expectations over and over again. So first off, I mean, the best way is just to have a very, very spread out tasking um, procedures as far as subjects go. And, and um, 
ones where you can't get feedback um, included in there. Um, so, so I use tasking methods that are um, very simple. I don't use I don't use subtasks. I don't use details or anything like that because uh, it's always better to just retask if you want to know something else about something. So I always keep things simple down to one subject. And now one of the really important things um, within tasking that I don't think most most people in the remote viewing community don't know about this, but this is something that um, I do know about. One of those things is, is to explain why you want to know. Okay, so for instance, the mounds. When I tasked that, it was, and Daz has done a project where he showed that he can create a UFO story, Daz's UFO abduction, whatever, and, ha and, view the, and ha have the taskers remote view this, and they'll get all excited about this UFO abduction story that happened to Daz, basically, right? So viewers can take a story and go with the story and just stay within the story instead of finding the reality of the story. And what you want to do is typically, at, you want to put in there why you want to know. So with the mounds, for instance, these were the tenant mounds. I think the tasking went something like, describe the creation of the tenant mounds so that I can understand if these are man-made, if these are something that are truly anomalous creation or anything else not listed here. So typically my taskings will be long and I will put in there why I wanna know something and the potentials of what that thing could possibly be. And I usually end it with anything else not listed here. And using that method, it begins to pull the viewers <clears throat> and mine gets my intent clear for the tasking. It begins to pull them out of fantasy land because sometimes viewers will get stuck in that zone and they'll, they'll grab an aspect of something that may be like strange and fantasy and they'll just go into it and they'll just perceive that one thing instead of stepping outside of it. So, so it's really, it really comes down to the tasking methods and, and, the unexpected types of taskings that I give out. Brilliant, thank you very much. I mean, well, I know, you know, like there's a story that comes from the um, ex-military days. I think Lynn, Lynn's here, Lynn Buchanan is here and it might've been Lynn, I don't know, I can't remember who did it, but it was the, um, the doorknob, the beautiful jeweled doorknob, right? I mean, like, it's like you pick up something that you have a propensity to want to see, like you grab an edge of that. And sometimes remote viewers will just go in and focus on that thing. You know, it's, it's the doorknob effect. Uh, I focused in on the doorknob on this yeah. house, historic house, did a perfect session on the doorknob and it was in the military and the, assessment was you did a great session on the wrong target. You get a zero for this. <laughs> I, I, that's like, I, I talk about that story because it's an awesome story because it's, it's, it's what we do, you know? And I've seen a lot of viewers who are so like uh, ramped up on paraphysical stuff. 
in general, like, like weird esoteric paraphysical. And it doesn't matter what they're viewing. You know, they're going to go hunt down that weird esoteric stuff and it's going to be there somewhere, but you can't verify it. So yeah. Thanks Lynn. Don, you're up next. Okay. All right. So John, I know how you go after data. I've seen your videos on YouTube and on uh, Rush, which was formerly Edge of Wonder. Um, so this is another opinion question for you about getting data. In your opinion, can real historical events be deliberately obscured by something like reverse remote viewing? In other words, a group of people intending that an actual event happened a different way? That's a really good question. That is a really, really, really good question. Um, and I think that it would have to do with the tasking, ultimately. Like, like, why would you want to know? Like, why would that question even come into your head? If that question comes into your head, do an experiment, do describe such and such event, right? And then do another tasking on the same thing where you say, describe such and such event so I can understand if, right? No, and I'm see not, that following. Type of I'm not that? following that. If you, if you think that perhaps an event can be changed with remote viewing, then you've got to test it somehow, right? Right, right. Yeah. That's the, so yes. I'm going from the standpoint of how are you going to test it? Because I haven't thought of like that specifically. Um, like, how are you going to test that? But now on the other side of it, I do know that remote viewers will affect events. And the way yeah. that I know this, now I, I assume you're talking about like, can remote viewers remote influence a past event to make it look different to remote viewers? Right, because like, you know, remote viewers get, you know, the terminology here is sort of uh, fuzzy, but they get attracted to certain things, right? So maybe if I don't want you to see A, I can try to make B more attractive in some way that they attract the remote viewers to look at that instead of A is just sort of a simple. Well, I would test it, you know, and I, I was trying to figure out how to do that. Well, run two different taskings. What do I you mean, mean? Well, okay. So first off you want to remote influence something, right? But I wouldn't recommend remote viewing past events, maybe some past event in your life. Um, something that you did, you know, set up a fake situation. Okay. In, you know, I, I took the glass of water and I stuck it in the bathroom versus I took the glass of water and I smashed it against my wall, right? Do one of those things and then run your experiment off of that. Try to get them to, to see if, try to figure out ways to get them to focus on one, one side of the event that's not true, but you create the event. I want to I want to check this out. Yeah, this is interesting. All right, that, that's all I got here. Thank you. Yeah, um, but so now with remote viewing itself, you know, like okay, so this wasn't that long ago. This was a couple of years ago. I was asked to do some certain work, and part of this work was to remote view, uh, well, just future terrorist attack, right? So, remote viewing in this particular capacity, in this point in time, I was asked to put basically um, a qualifier at the beginning of the tasking. So 
Normally, when we want to remote view some type of terrorist attack that may or may not happen in the future, it would be something akin to describe the next terrorist attack on U.S. soil by such and such group. Very basic tasking. It's got no time frame to it. You task that, you're going to get a bunch of horrible stuff, a bad event happening. It's inevitable. So this time it was asked that I put the qualifier of without affecting any event, describe the next one. Okay. So when, when I task that and I get the data back, the viewers are all, they're talking about a guy in the desert riding a horse. I'm like, wait, what, what, what's this? What's going on here? Why is there, this has got nothing to do with anything. So I pull that off and then, oh, look, we get an actual event happening. So the viewers on a subconscious level know that they are going to affect the event. Wow. And if you, in the tasking, tell them not to affect the event, then they're going to do something else. Because this is, you know, it's like the double slit experiment. The observer affects the outcome of the experiment. Right. This is a research program right here. What we're talking about. That's amazing. All right. I'll, I'll give up here. Thank you. Uh, John, while we're on the topic and it was a question earlier uh, in the, in the chat window as well. And it's one of my questions as well. Did you get any confirmation that you uh, stopped any of the terrorist events that you're asked of you? Yes, I have. I've had, I've had confirmation specifically on one that happened. Um, I'm I'm not talking about like after 9-11. That stuff was like all of the, okay, so all of the information that we gave after 9-11 detailed out things that the FBI later gave to the public on the types of events that they were planning. So, So all the, like, for instance, stadium, biological, uh, open, open stadiums and closed stadiums where bios can flow. And then, you know, we would have it shift into explosives. And so things would shift and morph and shift and morph because we were looking at this stuff once a week for that. And, and later on, what happened was all of the data that we had gotten on it and gave to them, they had come out in news reports saying these were their attacks. And it was everything that we had always gotten. Now, I know at one point that they boarded up some uh, part of the subway uh, system in New York, these vents, because we had identified a location where bios would be dropped through these vents. So I know that they had boarded those up, so that couldn't happen. Um, There was a, so I don't know, ultimately, like, they never, they never gave us information, like, at all, nothing. It was literally we fed them constantly with this stuff and didn't know what it was good for. Just didn't know. Um, there was something a couple years ago where there was, uh, um, was in the Bay area and we had gotten some, uh, data surrounding, uh, a potential attack in like a tourist area in the Bay area. And, and, what happened was um, the person that we were working with, um, because of the data that we gave him, he requested um, patrols, more patrols on boats uh, in the bay and in specific areas in order to deter anything. 
And then I think about two weeks later, they caught the guy who was just sort of a lone wolf character um, who was planning an attack in that specific area. So now I don't know like if our data led to that or not, because we don't get a lot of feedback from this stuff, but I just, I just help and do that whenever I'm asked. John, just so I ask, cause we still got a lot of questions. Are you all right for time at the moment? Oh yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Oh, I'm going to be a little bit selfish and ask one more question here before we go to the others. Um, and this, this goes back to your book uh, on, on the on the night of the, I'm going to call it alleged EMP attack against you guys. Um, could you go over, uh, yeah, and you know, you guys were just about to run a project looking at Stargate, the Stargate project's biggest secret. We weren't. You no, weren't? No, no, The tasking, weren't they, wouldn't that suggest a task? No, no, no. Uh, we weren't, there's no way we were going to do it. Because, okay, but it did come up in conversation. Okay, so what happened was, so we had, like, we had, um, so the professional viewers were out, and we were also running a class at the same time, and the Sunday London Times was there taking the course um, and doing a piece on us for their, like, like weekend insert. And so, so I was going back and forth Prudence was teaching the class mostly. And then I was going back and forth with the professional viewers and we were doing some other types of advanced training. And, and when needed Pru, uh, it, with, to help Prue out, I would come into the class and help out there. And so I was going back and forth and the professional viewers would too. And so, so we were doing that, like I think it was a, a week long class. And so we were, we were in this office building, in Carlsbad, California. And it was like this grouping of office buildings, these big glassy buildings. And we would use these, these offices for meetings. And so we figured, okay, we could just have a, you know, do a class there, which was actually really weird for the people who were in the office building because they're like, who are these crazy people who are talking about weird stuff? And they keep going, coming and going. So this was on the last day of class. Sunday London Times had left already. Um, they didn't spend the whole time there, which was unfortunate because this was the craziest event. So. I was there, we were sitting in the lobby and where the secretary is, and there was this hallway that went down and the students were in a classroom down this hallway. Now, if you watch the video uh, of that, so that class is online. At the end of that class, the power goes out, okay? There's a point in that class that you can go watch that video and go, Oh, the power did go out. So, so I recommend you see if you can find that spot. Um, so, so we were in this lobby area. It was me, the professional viewers and crew sitting around because we're waiting for the viewers to come up with an objective for the professionals to view. So they're apparently in the room going through all sorts of stuff. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, um, after we've been sitting there a bit, the, these alarms start going off, the power goes out, all these security doors start to close. And it was just, it was just panic because the only thing going through my head was that this is the moment that we all die. This is the moment that they're just going to kill us because up until that point, it had been just pure constant harassment. So, and everybody on the team knew of the harassment and pretty much everybody had the same mindset that that we're about to be killed. So we're on the second story 
And we, uh, we all ran to the window and Prue ran to the back where the students were. And I'm looking out in the parking lot down below because I'm expecting, you know, people coming in with guns. I literally was expecting that. And same with the other members of the team. So I had one of the other members run to the stairwell because I knew the elevator wouldn't be working and to go check the stairwell and to wait there and just see if anybody's coming up. So he goes over there and nothing's happening. And so we decide like, we're gonna make our way down the stairwell and go outside. So we do that, we go outside, we walk through the parking lot. We see like there's this, there's this road that goes down to this main road. And this main road is called Palomar Airport Road. And, and this road goes into the three office buildings, just a little road. There's cars sitting on this road with people standing next to them. And when I talk to these people, they're like, my car died. So I'm like, okay, their car died. I go to the security guard. I ask the security guard, does he have power in any of the buildings? He says, there's no power in the buildings. And I'm totally confused because there are people standing around, milling around with cars that are like not working, buildings out all around us. And so I go back in and I go upstairs to just report back what I saw. And Prue comes running out of the room, just completely pissed off. And she, she starts screaming, you know what they're going to task us on? Do you know what they were going to task us on? They were going to task us on the biggest secret of the Stargate program the biggest secret of the Stargate program. And she said, that's why the power went out. So she didn't know anything about what I would, was encountering out there because I hadn't told her yet. She just came out raging. And, and so she just thought, felt, whatever, that the power got shut off because that was about to be tasked and that was the warning, right? So then I go back out after like, a little bit of time because the, the power company had come and, you know, okay. So we have these big, they're, they're like power converter boxes, big green boxes next to buildings, but they're closer to the road, the power company services. And the guy that was looking in the power box, trying to fix it was basically saying that there, that this is, there's no way this can happen, that this is this board, this, area of the power box is completely fried. And the only way this could happen if, is if, is if there was an influx of energy outside of it, because this doesn't hold that much energy, not enough energy flows through it basically to make it do what it did. So there's where we go into the EMP side and then remote viewing on it. Yeah. And, and, you know, this has happened before. It's like the, the, the warning, I mean, remote. So we use like, Remote viewing classified stuff. It's just, if, if you're a public person and you're working with people, they're aware of what you're doing. Remote viewing classified stuff is not a good idea. Thanks for clarifying that, John. I'll let the others ask their questions now. And now I think Gino's has on that the longest. Thanks, Das. Hi, John. Thanks for being here and for sharing your time. Um, I just wonder, being to the side of knowing ourselves better than doing all this kind of stuff we're remote viewing. I just was, was wondering in a practical thing, how do you manage that equilibrium between 
like giving yourself up and focusing your intention during remote viewing processes like even if you don't have any tangible feedback how do you manage to be sure that you are correctly focusing your intentions uh, to, for, to a target and how do you recognize that or feel that inside you when you practice that's all it, thanks it, it's all about intent literally in, intent is everything your your intent is what creates where you go and what you do in 3d physical life and your intent in 3d physical life more things need to line up and it takes what we call time to get to the outcome of your intent in 3d physical life right but mm -hmm. within the the world of remote viewing your intent is instantaneous. I mean, that's what the yes. methodology is. The methodology is just intent. You're intending to do this. You're intending to do that. Um, you can create any kind of methodology of intent. So, so with remote viewing, because my intent decides to go somewhere, because my intent decides to tr trust what the tasker, where the tasker is sending me, or because my intent wants to go there, it will just go there. It will just do that. Um, and You know, when you've been doing this long enough, you know, you know, the feeling, you know, the zone, you know, <clears throat> you know, that you're going after that you're going to be in a sensational sensor sensory zone within yourself. And so that's how you stay clean with it. Um, not that your senses are, <clears throat> are even going to be able to explain something that's esoteric in the first place, because we're, you know, translating this into language. You know, that's the ultimate goal of remote viewing is to take these basic sensations and translate them into language and symbology. But the experience that a person has, if they know what zone to be in, and really it all has to do with body, um, is something that you begin to trust after a while and somewhere that you know you can go to get information if it's needed or experience if you want it. So that's, that's typically how I do it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, John. You know, the body, the body is really everything when it comes to remote viewing. I'll, if I, if it was my choice, I would, it, eventually it will be, but it's hard to take people through a really, really long remote viewing course that lasts up to a year. You know, people have their lives, but that's how I would do it. And I would spend the first three months only working on the body to get people out of the habit recognizing that sensation like yeah. understanding yourself yeah okay yeah. thanks a lot john you're welcome thanks guys uh up next is rich in the queue hey john uh got a couple of very quick questions um just want to say thanks for coming on and uh i took your class your beginner's class last year in either august or september i think um actually took it with don there And uh, so I was just curious, are you going to be having an advanced class anytime soon? Yes. See, this is, okay, so this is where I get hung up on an advanced class. I love training in person. And I know we're in this whole crazy COVID thing right now. But I love training in person. And I am, I literally, I'm, I'm trying to create an institute, a physical location institute, where I can do extended in-person training with groups of people. And so what I've mostly been working on is trying to move that 
thing forward because I do, I, something is missed in the online, right? Something's missed. I mean, students interacting with each other is really important and, and students being able to see how other people remote view is really important as well as um, having a tighter psychic pump effect occurring, you know, when, when everybody's together, it does happen in online classes as well, where people create this like well of psychic energy. It's kind of like birds drafting off of each other. And so it makes the experience a little bit deeper, but when you're doing it in person, it's much deeper. And with advanced classes, I just have been going back and forth about teaching online versus forcing something like out in the wild somewhere. So I'm still in that mode of, of trying to like push forward some other thing that I want to do in order to provide a better, more deeper platform, a more realistic in my mind platform for people um, to learn more advanced remote viewing. But the thing is, is that I had an obsession with remote viewing. Um, we all, when we first start to remote view, we crash and burn. We'll have a high level of skill and then we'll crash and burn. That crashing and burning is your best teacher. That right there, you go into shame. So you got to learn how to deal with your shame. Do you want to go through your shame? Most people don't. Most people give up right at that point because, oh, it's too hard. I suck now. Oh, I feel so shameful when I give the session to my uh, instructor or so they'll just bail. They'll just leave it. You're the one that has to have the obsession. You're the one that's going to create the situation where you are an advanced remote viewer. Nobody's going to teach you how to get there. The only way to get there is by doing it over and over and over and over and over again and watching and feeling and taking notes on. In, so when you do a session, you're done with the session, you haven't gotten feedback yet. You always have to go into what, keeping a notebook on what you thought, what you felt during the session. Were there periods in the session that felt different than other periods? Were you absolutely convinced about something being real before you get feedback? Then you get your feedback and you begin to understand what your feelings are as you're moving through a session of the data itself. And this will actually get you closer to being a much, much better remote viewer faster because you're paying attention to what's happening to you. And so those of us like who have, I mean, look, I mean, look at Daz, for instance. Daz has, has like stuck with this for such a long time because of his own self-interest. And I don't see a lot of remote viewers doing that who get trained. I don't know how many remote viewers have been trained, but it's that self-interest and that obsession with it that is going to turn you into an advanced viewer up against any tricks of methodology. You know, they just don't exist. Um, advanced training is just a very focused zone to just make you practice more. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. And I appreciate that. If it's any consolation, I know that the reason I got my start in remote viewing uh, is because, frankly, because of COVID and pushing things online because <laughs> yeah. I had an issue with travel and everything. So, right, right. Uh, but I, but yeah, I'm like with anything, I mean, uh, yeah, in-person would definitely be preferred. Uh, so that'd be very cool to see what you uh, create out of that. My, uh, 
my second question is kind of off topic, but I've been obsessed with your little wood print back there behind you ever since. Yeah. Did you buy that somewhere or is that available online ever since? I watched your show on Edge of Wonder, and for yeah, all that guys, thing I there. got at um, check that out. You know what? I think you can go. I don't know if they have this online or not, but you know that uh, place called Iseti, E C E T I. Mm, yeah. So, so they have. That's where I got it. Okay. It's a woodcut. It's an actual woodcut, cool. and the artist died a long time ago. I can't remember the name of it nor the artist, but they still might be selling them, and they're the only ones that I know that were selling this thing <coughs> excuse me Very so cool. you might check with them i will thank you and then uh my final one have you ever i'm sure but have you heard or remote viewed the bets sphere b-e-t-z i think we did that i mean i it's like okay so you have to realize like 25 years of projects and <laughs> sure. it's like uh yeah we viewed that but i don't remember what it is um so I think that did have something to do with uh, some type of art piece that somebody was working on. And that I was one of the that, theories. Yep. I think that is what our data reflected. I Very think, interesting. but okay. I cannot okay. remember. I didn't, I don't think there was anything truly anomalous about it. Very cool. Thank you very much, John. Uh-huh. Thanks Rich. And up next is John Knowles. You have to unmute John. Sorry, um, I wanted to say a few things. Um, I wonder how I ever became the training coordinator for TDS after hearing you, John, talk about all of the other ultra dimensions and multi dimensions and creatures. Because uh, I guess I'm just a little up from materialism, so you know I never got anything in the paraphysical uh, column on on the TDS method. So I just wanted to start with that, but um, I do want to ask you also to mention that. Yeah, the, in the first class I ever took with Prue, she said, okay, what's the one thing you're certain of in this session? And that was a great way to start off. John referred to that thing about what you know and what you don't know. And, and actually, pretty much every viewer did find one thing they were certain of in that first class I took in, I guess it was 1999. Um, but my question has to do with uh, not dimensions, but with time. So uh, let me just explain quickly the background. So. Joe McMonigle says, would it surprise you if I told you that every time a remote viewer views uh, something at a given time, they actually get data from a little bit in the past and maybe a little bit in the future. Mm -hmm. And Ingo Swan says, uh, when she, he was do remote viewing certain uh, multiple choice things that he would, sometimes the uh, field sort of would dissolve in front of him and these targets would line up waiting to be called. In other words, time kind of went a little askew so um, time, it appears, can be a little fuzzy. And actually, in our book uh, that Deborah and I are writing, that it should be out anytime soon, um, you can make use of this in the lottery, actually. So my question to you is, if you've experienced this and what you think about that view, that time, when you're remote, view is actually not sort of uh, zooming in on a second, but it has fuzziness to it. Yeah, it, it definitely has fuzzy to it. fuzziness to it. It's not crisp at all. It's not. It, it seems to, I mean, look what happens when you um, task a remote viewer on a location and don't even give them a time. Like, like I've seen remote viewers slide in sessions in viewing a location uh, without a time constraint on it where they will 
talk about the future and the past, right? Within that one session. So, so it, it, you know, while I haven't necessarily like honed in or focused on that very much, it always does appear no matter what, it's going to be fuzzy and there's going to be bleeding around for, for whatever reason. And it could be that within that, that construct, because we are using more of a fourth dimensional or a different dimensional construct, remote viewing is what it is. The only three dimensional aspect of this is what we write down on paper. We're having an experience through some other window and time through that other window is not the same as time through this window. Yeah. Yeah. Um I'm glad to hear that you have a somewhat similar view on that. Another question is, um, you've explored mysteries in Northern California and elsewhere, like things on the ground and things underground. I wonder if you have any conclusions about um, any of that work that you've done that you can share with us that, that was or was not on the History Channel. Um, the, um, okay, so, so this is what I believe at this point in time. I believe that I found um, uh, remnants of a past civilization in Northern California. Um, and the, this civilization were, was human, but a slightly different race of humans, much larger. And I believe that I, I haven't been able to test this yet, but I believe that quite possibly what I have found are giant burial mounds and aspects of a civilization that has disappeared from that area um, through, an earth, through path, past earth cataclysm. But I'm not gonna really say this to public because I still haven't verified a lot of these things. Uh, but that's my lead on it. And, and thinking that perhaps this is, this is something really interesting. But you know, what was funny is that I, I had spoken to a geologist because I had found some carvings, really interesting, very old carvings by following remote viewing data uh, in a certain area in the Bay Area. And um, when I showed the carvings to the geologist, the geologist was, this is really fascinating. Where did you find this? Oh, I found it here. Oh, this is just natural. Why is it natural? Because because nobody has ever done anything like that there. So you're not going to get a lot of people listening to you or me. Um, and so a lot of the work that I have to do has to be just me. Okay, thanks for that, John. And also for everything else you said, it's been fascinating and glad you're back and doing this kind of thing. Thank you. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, next up is Brenda. Hi, John. Hi. Um, I've been watching Prue's uh, videos over the years, and it was really interesting when they're touching on the targets. They can actually touch the targets. Does that mean they're actually in multidimensional, you know, um, at one time? Um, or is it just... what, 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 by touching the target? Is that Yeah, is that right? yeah touching oh, the target. You can smell yeah. it, and, you know. And... She's talking about reaching out and touching it, I literally like touching it. So in, in remote viewing, you know, we will use our body a lot 
and we will reach out and touch things. It doesn't necessarily mean that it, well, everything's multidimensional, but it doesn't mean that it existed in another dimension. It literally just means you are like reaching out and touching it to feel it. Mm. Okay, um, thank you. Um, and there was a man that was working with her, I think his name was Dave, is he still around? Is he still teaching? Who? Dave, there was a TV crew there at the time. When the oh, you mean Mike? Mike, yeah. No, Mike died. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I'm the only one that teaches this. Right, yeah. I've been following you for over the years. Uh, the way I was presented to RV, I was doing, had a lot of workshop with just a couple of friends. We were going in to get envelopes and just seeing what was in them without knowing anything about remote viewing. And a dozer who'd been working for like 40 years for big companies and states and everything, he walked into the library where we were at and he said, I think you'd be interested in remote viewing. And that's how we get into it. And oh, it was amazing. Cool. Yeah, but, I mean, the, the, yeah, sorry. But the second target, the first target was actually seeing everything. And I, I, they couldn't hear me. They couldn't see me, but I could see them. And it was a, an event in history. And we opened the target packets and everything. Then the second one we did, it was like a 10-week course, David Morehouse's um, video. And the second one I went into, and I was in the target. I knew I wasn't. I got the third target, but I knew within me that it was that was the wrong target. It was a second into the second one, and then when I was in there, I said, "Okay, let let me do what they're all talking about." Um, and I, I moved to another part where I wanted to go, and I was there. Then I was right back in the room again. But um, do you know how that kind of came about? No, I, I are you talking about you slid to another objective? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so. I mean, I call it sliding, um, <clears throat> and it's just something that happens when your intent is not honed, when you first begin to remote view, um, mm -hmm. where you can slide around a bit, and mm -hmm. sometimes viewers will jump into a future target or objective uh, mm -hmm. on one session, even though they're not supposed to. They're supposed to be viewing something right then and there, specific, mm -hmm. um, and then they'll do that session, get feedback and go, oh, I did view that. I did view that. Now, see, that's a very slippery slope, very slippery slope to believe in sliding or believe that you can um, remote view something uh, that wasn't your objective and take it seriously because uh, everything is intent. Every single thing is intent. If you intend to have a specific belief system within remote viewing, then you're going to follow it. You're going to go that path. So you're the one that crafts the direction that you want to go here based off of your beliefs. And so I, mm -hmm. I would ask you and everybody to look at purely at your intent and what you believe and what you don't believe when it comes to all this, because that is the path that you're walking on. And none of those things are set in stone mm -hmm. and they're all meant to be broken too. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. I've, I've experienced a bit of that later on, and um, years later. But um, also, Prue was talking about uh, she called it an alien toy, and she said yeah. it had been like made, <laughs> and she said it was a device that we could really use and help us all. Is is that in existence or? No, it's not in existence. I mean, we were asked to um, to remote view uh, a toy that aliens play with. And so, so, I mean, like a lot of this stuff, 
these things, we would be asked to do something, we would do it, and then the data would go into a black hole. I don't know what people did with it or didn't do with it. But as far as I know, no, none of that stuff has ever made it out. Mm. I mean, we even looked at like the, you know, the grays, they have a membrane over their eyes that they will put over their eyes so they have enhanced vision, night, whatever. And we even like tried to back engineer uh, that specific thing for a company so that they could see if they can create it. But will that stuff ever make it to the public? I mean, military and intelligence applications, yeah, definitely, if there's any uh, viable way to actually make it. Because, you know, you have to think, like, when you remote view things on another planet, from the future, whatever, even future human technology, how are you going to explain it? You're going to have to use metaphor, right? And plus, on top of it, remote viewers, you know, they aren't so technical, right? I mean, how many remote viewers will know how um, the ins and outs of circuitry? Um, and so remote viewers are going to like describe things all in very metaphorical ways, unless they actually see it right there in front of them. Um, so a lot of this stuff, whether it's future based and trying to like make patentable technologies based off of it with remote viewing, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to bring it to something that is usable, ultimately, very difficult. You have to have a lot of dedicated people, mm. a lot of time. Um, right, yeah, see that. Um, let's see, there's one more question. Um, yeah, when you were talking about the self getting into the self, um, and you were sensing the energy coming from your feet kind of thing going right above your head, I get that a lot. I've been getting that. I didn't know what it was. I'd go in a, a Christian church. I'd go to uh, different uh, places and I'd get in all different walks of life sort of thing. Um, even get it watching TV. <laughs> and it's like, I think it was taking you into yourself. I think it was Pablo that mentioned something about the energy. Um, it started with your lower chakra, he said, and everything. And that's what I get when the chakra starts spinning kind of thing. But I, I like everything in science. I do like everything in science. So I see it as that. But I think that's taken you into your true self. Because I have experienced, um, like I was saying about the remote viewing, um, I went into the third target knowing I wasn't, it shouldn't be in the third target and it should be the second target. And that's when I shifted in time kind of thing. And it was all brand new to me. I, had, I was so green about everything. And then all of a sudden I was kind of woke up. It took me years, but yeah. and remote means the best thing I've ever come across right now. So, but I do, I am still grounded though. <laughs> so yeah. thank you for coming in there. <laughs> thank you, Brenda. Thank you. Thank you, Des. No probs. Uh, John, you touched on this just now, uh, before we go to the last couple of questions. Um, how do people get to learn your version of removing your method? I mean, I know the, uh, the Prudence early aura bomb PDF, is out there and her training videos, you know, I got them on my YouTube channel and stuff. Um, but if people want to take classes with you or, or learn or get a copy of your TDRV manual or whatever, how, how, how do they go about that? Well, so I, we've had this like TDRV template manual. It's not really a manual. It's a template that uh, I like just thrown in the dustbin. Um, because I'm writing the, the book, the TDRV book, actual workbook, 
that I hopefully will be done with it later this year. That will be the unequivocal source on it as opposed to like what we've had in the past. Um, uh, the Aurora bomb stuff that Prue was doing was like, uh, she was trying to get people, trying to show people that they can remote view on the fly as opposed to like thinking that they've got to do this like paper, like long extended paper thing. So the remote, the Aurora bomb was sort of this, I don't know, like side project, slightly funky, um, quick interest methodology that she was trying to push forward, but I don't think it lasted very long. But the, um, the actual TDRV methodology, I am rewriting that into a full workbook. Um, so yeah, so that'll be, that'll be good to finally get that done. It's just been a long time in the making. Um, and I do train it, I do train it, and I usually do training courses through righthemispheric.com on my website. Excellent. Um, yeah. Thanks for clarifying that. Okay, we've got a couple of last questions because we're running like two and a half hours. So if we go to Aaron next. Hey there. Am I up? Oh, there. Thanks, Daz. Um, and thank you, John, for, for coming tonight. Um, I had a question about um, technique. Uh, I've, I know you've mentioned in um, an interview, I want to say with Walter of Search for Truth, uh, where in order to separate your session data from the rest of the team, let's say there's a deficit of viewers on the project and you're forced to serve as both the analyst and the viewer. Uh, you mentioned a technique where you kind of just go through sessions without any tasking whatsoever, put them in a pile, and then when you need to refer to them, you pull them out and somehow magically match them up with the tasking. Can you kind of break that down? It seems like magic to me. Well, so, Remote viewing sessions, they, they exist in the realm of probability until they're cast. Remember, this is, this is, our experience in remote viewing is not a physical experience. We're just applying it to paper in the physical. So we're in a quantum entanglement zone. We're in a quantum realm with remote viewing. And so that means your data, your information can exist in the state of probability for infinity until it becomes focused on. Once you focus on it, it becomes solid. So, so you can do sessions that are untasked, right? You can do sessions that are untasked. You can have a stack of sessions. I can make up my own tag and just go through a full session. I could build up 20, 30, 40, 50 sessions that are just sitting there in the realm of probability. And if I've got a deficit of viewers, I will literally just, you don't ever look at them. You don't look at them, you don't touch them, you just leave them alone, put them in the dusty edge corner of your closet. And then when you need something, you just randomly pull one out. And then you assign that tag to what you want to know about, to the objective. So, so that's it, I mean, and then it becomes that, it becomes solid. Uh, and there's no time, there's no time with this. So you have to think outside of physical reality um, when you're working this. And the other thing too, is that um, if you do have sessions already in a project and you are doing analysis, like let's say that, that you were brought in, you were a viewer on a project, you did a bunch of sessions on it. You've got your opinion out of, about it once you got feedback based off of what you experienced. It's really difficult as an analyst to add that into the mix, really, really difficult. 
Um, so I wouldn't really recommend so much uh, viewing and analyzing in the same project. Sometimes it can be helpful. Most of the time we can be a little bit bullheaded on what we felt over what others felt. Wow, super cool. Still very mind-boggling. I'm going to have to sit with it and try it out at some point. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can do a tap. You can, if you want to task yourself, just do, don't think of anything. Do a stack of 20 sessions. And then as you go throughout your days, all of a sudden you're like, oh, what was that weird event that happened? Let me write that down. I'm just going to grab a random session or maybe two or maybe three and then put a tag with it. So you did it before you even thought that you were going to task it on something like that. So it's a good way to uh, keep yourself blind. Nice. Very, very cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll go to Rich for the last one of the evening. Thanks, Steph. Um, so yeah, John, I know you've bilocated at least a couple times, once with Mars and then once with the city. I cannot remember uh, the event that was... Uh, uh, like the fire bombing, but um, I know within at least the CRV paradigm and really remote viewing in general, but um, that bilocation is uh, frowned upon because the idea is you want to collect data. <laughs> and then when you bilocate, uh, it seems that you're in such awe that you just kind of stop talking or writing and nobody gets data from it. But I was just curious if you've kind of experimented. I've always been curious if you could normalize bilocation uh, that then maybe it wouldn't be so miraculous and you could uh, provide data on it and if that might not actually be preferred. Uh, so yeah, normalize by location as a remote viewing methodology. Yeah. Yeah. That would be really cool. That'd be super cool. Yeah. Like right. I, I don't know if you it, like experimented with the try and to induce it or anything like that. Well, okay. So, so, all right. So remote viewing is remote viewing is dependent in my opinion this is my opinion on cellular capacitance and the cellular capacitance meaning specifically how much voltage we have moving through our cells, Qigong, meditation, Tai Chi, whatever. These increase cellular capacitance. Um, PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic frequency increases cellular capacitance in like the five to seven Hertz range um, at like maybe like 2.5 Gauss. So there are things that you can do, same with IR lights in the 1000 NM range. So there are things that you can do to push a deeper extended remote viewing experience. So you're talking about something that's stepping outside of the on paper and 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 begin to potentially increase the energy and experience in having more of an in-depth bilocation, you know, movie mind experience. Um, so so there are ways that you can do it, that you can, you know, push that edge of the envelope. Now, just a really simple way, if you want to have more bilocation, is is do do a um, um, a type of Wim Hof breathing mm. and then go for a visual when you're holding your breath or Interesting. go down into theta, like go down and do a deep theta laying on the couch with an, and, and practice going into theta 
where you have any type of vision and then bringing it back up to consciousness, go up and down, like swim in it. Because most of the time when people go into theta, they allow themselves to drop into sleep where they forget everything that happened at theta. So if you learn to begin to, in an extended remote viewing site, begin to go down into theta, to swim in it, to bring things back up to consciousness, what that's going to do is they're going to train you to be able to stay conscious and know the path to get down to the theta, where that bilocation experience is more apt to happen. And if you want to bring that into your regular remote viewing sessions, I mean, people love bilocation because of the experience of it. And sometimes it does bring like very clear, good data, but yeah, it's like, it, it almost kills the session at that point. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. Thank you, John. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for all the great replies you give us tonight, John. And thank you for attending. I want to thank everyone for all their great questions. Uh, it's been a good two and a half hours uh, and I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, again, thank you, John, for, for doing yeah, this. Yeah, you're first. welcome. Thank you, everybody. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Thank you all. Yeah, you guys too. Thank you. Take care. It's been a really good chat. Thanks so much. Night, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. See you, John. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.